Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Fred Turner. He's the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University. He's also the author of three incredible books, The Democratic Surround, Multimedia and American Liberalism from World War II to the Psychedelic 60s, From Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Network, and The Rise of Digital Utopianism, and Echoes of Combat, The Vietnam War in American Memory. So super light topics. <laughs> and it's a pleasure to have Professor Turner join us on the show. When I wrote to him, it was completely on a lark. I was up late one night, as I'm prone to do. And I've read two of his books. I haven't read The Echoes of Combat, but I read Democratic Surround in preparation for this show. And then I read From Counterculture to Cyberculture years ago, but then revisited again for the show. And I was just kind of mulling over, you know, wish list. Who would I really want to talk to? as I'm closing out the year and his name just bam popped up and I sent the note literally Google search found the email sent the note like hey I'm this dude in Brooklyn with the show do you want to be on it and he was kind enough to say hell yeah minus the hell and here we are so it's great to have you on no thanks Philip it's a delight to be here so I'm going to start with you know a kind of a broad topic because both books that I'm really going to be pulling from and and you know I've read a bunch of essays and other things so there's going to be a lot of different source material kind of pulled in you know as much as this is you know this idea of techno utopianism this idea of how we think about digital and how it affects our world it feels like it is both pervasive in the way we live our lives but also the story of the values and the ideas behind where we are right now also feels underreported. It feels like we're in two states. We live in this state where everything, we swim in this stuff, mm-hmm. but yet we don't really know why. So I want to give you an opportunity to just give some broad strokes as to how did we arrive in this particular moment of digital utopianism or techno-culture, any number of different terms that we can use to describe it. Happy to. So, you know, we live in this strange time when we encounter media very personally, right in our sort of domestic space. I have my laptop on my desk right now. I have my phone in my pocket. It's right around my body. But we're part of a global network of interconnected people. We're connected through signals that run through corporations, through servers, through server farms around the globe. And we're very familiar, I think, with the way that media hit us right here in our domestic space. We don't know as much about where the dream of an interconnected world comes from. And it comes from World War II and right after in the United States. And it was a dream developed by cyberneticists, scientists at MIT, and by behavioral psychologists. And their hope was that we could build a world of interconnected individuals who would know one another, interact with one another as individuals, And we would escape what they had just experienced, which was top-down, one-to-many, mass-mediated fascism in World War II. People have been terribly afraid that Hitler had come to power because he was able to manage the radio, able to to do sort of one-to-many media, and, and everyone believed him. So what we would need to develop was a system of 
global interconnection at the individual level. And today, when I hear Mark Zuckerberg talk about Facebook's mission to connect, I hear echoes of MIT scientists from the 1940s and you know, really imperial American military officials, again, in the 40s and 50s, trying to build a kind of interconnected, global, humanist, individuated world. And I will say that they thought that connecting individuals in this way would free people individually and collectively to be more democratic. And I think exactly the opposite has happened. And I find that fascinating. And that's a, a really interesting way to think about this conversation. You know, I'm, I'm a kid of the 90s, so I, I kind of grew up with, you know, Al Gore's internet and, you know, AOL disc coming to the house. And that was my first, you know, access to the internet. So it was, it was very much a tool rather than an ideological construct. And I think what's interesting is you're really tracing some of these ideas that exist in two different places, right? Like when I read your work and others and your essays, you know, the military features very prominently in these conversations where if you think about or what I would suggest rather is if you think about how we have branded our digital world, <laughs> maybe in that late 90s, the military is absent from those conversations. It's more of this idea of the, you know, solo entrepreneur toiling away in his garage, right? Like that's the popular meme. So it seems like that military focus and history has been kind of obscured. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's funny too, because in the micro world of internet historians that I travel in, you know, the fact that it was a defense department project to build the internet, the internet actually emerges from military funded research is, is very widely known, but it's not something I think that that's associated more generally. I think we live in such a kind of Facebook social media era that we've lost track of that. We sort of see the corporate face of it. But it's absolutely the product of a military imperialist vision from the 40s and 50s. And I say imperialist, but it was a fairly benevolent vision at the time. You know, the thought was simply that we can build a system where we can connect the peoples of the world. It would be sort of like a United Nations through media. We would finally be, you know, free to connect across the board and it would be kind of an American managed world, but that's okay because that was better than communism. And you know, that was the thought of the time, but it really hasn't worked out that way. So no, people don't tend to know the military piece. They do tend to know Silicon Valley, but they tend not to know that Silicon Valley has both a military side and a countercultural side and that those two worlds actually play pretty well together historically, which is not something we think about either. So, And now I want to tease that out a little bit more, really because... Yes, they are particular like overtones and and thought processes when one, you know, centers a conversation. And as we've started to do and mention like military and it, it starts to feel heavier. Mm -hmm. But really what I want to make a distinction on, apart from how we might all some might feel about military and military interventions and what have you, it's really to tie the military as a public institution, Good. which I think is a different story from that private institution, right? That this was all created through the lens of entrepreneurship and how we spend our resources, which is why I really wanted to start at the military. But I really want to talk about the public way in which these tools came to light versus the, again, the modern mythology, which I feel is far more private. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, I think that the mythology of the lone entrepreneur has been incredibly damaging. The notion that, you know, the laptop sprung fully formed out of Bill Gates' head or Steve Jobs' head is just nonsense. It's just not true. It's doubly not true for the internet. The internet is a public good created with public money. And even today, I would argue that it's a public utility that's largely privately owned. 
And that is a real problem. But yeah, the military is a public institution. And it's one that we've had you know, different feelings about during and after the Vietnam era. But before the Vietnam era in the 40s and 50s, our military was something that virtually every man in America had something to do with. And it was an enormous force, among other things, for liberalization. You know, sort of a surprise that way. It was very much a public institution. It enjoyed great respect. It had won World War II. It was keeping us safe in our imaginations from communism. It really was powerful. And in the 60s, of course, it was the military establishment, broadly speaking, that brought us the space program and NASA and everything forward-looking in our society. And what happened was that in the early 1990s, the internet backbone that had been built out with government funding was essentially given away to a series of corporate actors and a couple of nonprofit actors to manage. And we've ended up in a much more privatized world than we would have otherwise. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned space because that's always one of my pet peeves when I think about, for example, SpaceX and how we think about like Elon Musk and others with their, you know, adventures or misadventures in space. You know, again, I grew up with NASA thinking this is a public project, right? There was a lot of excitement and pride, I think, for the, you know, the masses, for, mm -hmm. for lack of a better terminology, as compared to now where everything feels like such a corporate and privileged boondoggle. Yeah. Um, and, and it seems like there's been such an incredible shift in the way our imagination works, you know, not central to the themes, but it seems like that's woven. I feel like that's woven into a lot of, of your work. Mm -hmm. Like we're narrowing that funnel as to our participation. Yeah despite the fact the story is trying to tell us something remarkably different. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, something I'm focusing on a lot right now is, is a process that I think you just put your finger on, which is individuation. You know, our internet makers are constantly telling us that they're offering us personalized services, that things will be individuated, that you can control your Alexa, especially from your private place. It's a world they're proposing that is highly personalized, highly labile, highly accessible from your private space. And yet, to the extent that you imagine yourself as a private citizen capable of changing the world all on your own, you don't do the very things that we need to be doing right now. You don't build political coalitions. You don't negotiate across difference. You don't acknowledge that resources are radically and unevenly distributed. And you don't start to think that some resources, like public lands, are in fact public. The, you know, the airspace through which your TV signal goes, that's public. That belongs to all of us. It shouldn't be privatized. And so you begin to tolerate giveaways and begin to tolerate the fantasy that you know the corporate sector can do what the government can't. And I, I just think that's an awful, pernicious legacy. And it's one that has, I think, followed us since the Vietnam War, discredited the military, discredited our government, and other views began to bubble forward. Yeah, and we're kind of trapped in those views. So I want to go back to the 60s. Right. You know, Always have um, to go back to the 60s. <laughs> yeah. Let's, you know, let's let's travel back in time to the 60s. And, you know, when I was rereading and, and reading the work, you know, it's funny how there's that legacy of great social unrest, of the promise that we are going to do things differently. Mm -hmm. And yet so much of that did not come to fruition in the way that we that might have been envisioned at the time. And you spend quite a bit of time kind of going through those movements. So I want to spend some time really at the beginning, mm -hmm. like the, you know, whether it's, you know, we can use like the civil rights mm -hmm. movement, the, which really is a 50s Absolutely. movement that's, that's segued really to remember. Yeah. Yeah, into the 60s. Yeah. But so let's kind of use that mid 50s into the 60s with the free speech movement yeah. and how these ideas 
started to, you know, move from that sort of coalition building, that sort of radical change into something that begins to become a little bit more commoditized. Great. Happy to do it. So when I started writing the counterculture book and researching it, I discovered something that was so strange and so unacceptable to what I'd been taught that I literally didn't talk about it for a year until finally I just did. And that was that there wasn't one counterculture in the 1960s, but there were at least two. And they were quite distinct. One, I think, was descended directly from civil rights, the civil rights movement of the 1950s, the free speech movement, and would have been centered here in California in Berkeley. And that was the new left. And they did politics to change politics. They believed in political systems. They believed in meetings. They believed in legislation. They believed in negotiation. And it was deeply political in the classic sense. What I think I hadn't understood was how different they were from the tribe across the bay in San Francisco, the hippies. And you know, for the hippies, and, and these are the folks in Haight-Ashbury in 66, 67, 68, brought us the Grateful Dead, very active in, in internet developments later. For those folks, politics was by definition bankrupt. You know, what you needed to do was turn away from politics, turn inward, work on yourself, work on your consciousness, go build communes together, live collaboratively, live flexibly, live playfully, and all the rest of it would take care of itself. And you know, we forget that between 1966 and 73 is the largest wave of commune building in American history. Three quarters of a million Americans left their homes and moved onto communes in that period. Now, I started studying communes because I, was, I thought, oh, great, I, I want to escape the Vietnam War. This will be a happy story. And then I get onto the communes and I start studying them. And, and on the contrary, they are incredibly segregated. They are heteronormative in the extreme. You know, they are exactly mirrors of the kind of suburbs that so many young people have left. And this is where it starts to get strange. As the new left protests the Vietnam War, the other side of the counterculture, who I ultimately came to call the new communalists, turns away from the politics of race, turns away from the civil rights era, which is the sort of claiming of public goods, and turns inward in a way that then requires a kind of new consumerism. They're in love with the ideas of Buckminster Fuller, a sort of architect in that period. And he says, well, what you need to do is get the power and the technologies of the industrial world and repurpose them for your own personal development. And they set about doing that. Now, some of these technologies we're very familiar with, stereos, automobiles. Others we don't tend to think of as industrial technologies, but they are. And those are especially psychedelic drugs, things like LSD. Folks on the communes hope that if they could just take these technologies in, put them to work in their life world, and recognize themselves as interconnected beings connected through invisible rays of consciousness, the world would change. Now, you know, if you try to do that, you leave politics behind. And what I found on the communes, what I came to call ruled by cool, the coolest people dominated. Charisma dominated, men dominated. And, you know, the race politics were exceptional. No one I think that I interviewed would say, ah, you know, I, we were all white and we wanted it that way. What they would say is, well, you know, it was just easier to work with people like ourselves. One of my interviewees actually said that. And, you know, it's just sort of boggling to me. My point here is that it was this new communalist wing of the counterculture that redefined computing as a personal technology, as something that would bring new kinds of community into being. They were the people who married a kind of utopian impulse of the 60s to the industrial marketing of the 80s that brought us Apple Computer. When Apple Computer says we're the new rainbow computer, they're speaking this language of the new communalists. And the problem then for us now is that that language evacuates the discussion of politics. So politics goes away. 
because politics is, well, you know, why do politics? I've, I've got my cool new tool. I'm going to make myself better and different. And we lose a language for negotiating across inequality, across difference, and for even recognizing that computers are massively integrated technologies that link us instantly to large corporations. In the new communalist vision, the corporation is the provider of personal improvement, of new consciousness. And of course, that's what tech firms have been selling us for 40 years. It's funny that, you know, when I was really writing my notes for this, it was, I felt like I was writing down like a lot of just words. And <laughs> Welcome to my life. You know, like this, <laughs> just random words. They weren't questions, but they were just like, like things like community, mm. right? Like these definitions can mean so many different things mm. to different people, right? Where you're taking a word that, you know, I think by strictest definition implies working together with shared values, right? Like there's something in common, but yet you're building a community of individuals mm -hmm. that are hoping to manifest more community without doing work of community. So you get this weird circular kind of thing. And um, it's frustrating to me because I, I always deal with um, like co-option is such an mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. part of my work, right? As someone who deals in culture spaces. And when I look at that moment in history now, we're talking about that kind of 50, 60 movement, it does feel like so much of the, the work and the language and the sacrifice of the civil rights movement and its adherents, mm -hmm. which is other coalitions of folks as well, just gets the cool stuff gets pulled out, like you said, with none of the work and sacrifice to kind of take to build coalition with these people and do the work. Yeah, very, and, and that's just incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I, I very much agree <laughs> with that. It's incredibly frustrating and, and it, it just pains me endlessly. And uh, a couple of things, I think, to say that I think the words community and sharing have in our time become corporate words. I don't even try to use those words anymore. I think community really masks the thing that we really need to be talking about, which is an old Latin word, polis. The polis is the unit of political togetherness. It's the democracy. It's the unit of democracy. It's a community in some ways. Uh, it tends to be geographically co-located, tends to be you know, a space where there are lots of different kinds of people living together and are intimately connected. But it's also a place in which power structures are recognized and negotiated explicitly through political process. The polis is the place that you do politics. And what disappeared in the 60s, I think, in that co-optation moment that you described, is the sense that we're a polis. What starts to happen is things get very personalized and we should just sort of hang out. Let's just be together, right? We'll just sort of, it'll be good. We'll just ease. And that doesn't actually work because when you take away that political consciousness, when you take away the organized civil rights push, what you get instead is this mushy world where all kinds of sort of cultural norms that are just sort of circulating and are unspoken start bubbling up and become the we govern. So suddenly misogyny is a way to, to organize your commune. Racism just bubbles up and just sort of happens to be the way things are. You know, you get that kind of informal but very powerful rule by cultural norm. And, you know, you're talking to somebody who's written an essay in defense of bureaucracy, which you know, is, a, is a thing, right? But bureaucracies yeah. are wonderful because, or can be wonderful, because they set rules and processes that depersonalize negotiation and make it possible to talk about very difficult things across regions of very differently resourced peoples and build a polis. And out of a strong polis can come a healthy community. And 
I'm jotting down your bureaucracy point because I don't want to lose that. I want to come back to that in a section talking about like complexity Great. and how that factors into this. But before we get there, I do want to spend some time talking about maybe a topic that may or may not fit. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, which is, you know, this idea of trauma mm. and hurt, mm. because I think these are things that can be personal, mm -hmm. but they can also be communal mm -hmm. in a sense, right? They can be shared through experience, right? Like, I think if you look at, you know, we started this conversation in World War II, I think if you look at Jewish people, their descendants that came out of the Holocaust, I think there's real shared trauma there. You know, whether or not you experienced it, no matter where you were in the world, there's a trauma that comes through that. I think those who went through transatlantic slave trade here mm -hmm. in the United States mm -hmm. and throughout the Americas, similar thing. And I frame that to say, when you have moments like you had in the 60s, where there was a coming together of coalitions that looked, despite the fact that we don't like, we try to make a different movie when mm -hmm. we make these movies, it was multiracial mm -hmm. coalitions, mm -hmm. right? It was not just young people, but they were older folks. Mm -hmm. There was clergy. There was so many people that were really engaged in pushing forward a different agenda mm -hmm. for, for the country, a potential future. And then you have this co-option that we talk about, or I've kind of framed, like, how do we leave space in that to understand the hurt and trauma? Not at, that it happened, but in how do we get past that to build those coalitions, oh, you know, so because there's a funny piece. I'm sure you've seen Adam Curtis's Century of the Self, mm -hmm, right? Yeah. And I think in either the third or fourth part, there's a part where they're in Esalon mm -hmm. out in California and they bring in like some Black Panthers and some folks mm -hmm. and it just devolves into like damn near a, a physical fight. Right. Right. And there's like a real confrontation where I think like the Eslam people, primarily white, are kind of like, hey, man, I understand you're where you're coming from. And, mm. you know, the brothers are like, fuck that. Right. Right. right, right. <laughs> like, you know, so kind of like, how do we not build a bridge? Cause that's super corny, but how do we deal with the hurt and trauma and have a conversation or something that yep. doesn't lead to co-option? Such a great, oh God, that's such an important question. So first off, my Vietnam book is all about the Vietnam war as a cultural trauma. And a lot of my writing before I started writing about tech was about trauma at the individual level. And I spent an awful lot of time working with a group of Vietnam vets in a VA program in Boston to understand what trauma looks like. And I'm very aware of the way that it flows down through time. It does not stop. It flows generation after generation after generation. And in the American context, there are traumas that structure our society and that emerge from it. You know, the community that I worked with, the Vietnam vets that I worked with were largely white guys from South Boston who will remain for the rest of their lives to some degree isolated in South Boston in a world that is broken after Vietnam. Black America has been traumatized from the get-go by definition. The kinds of trauma that are in our society unspoken are incredibly powerful. I think there's a problem for our generation, which is a little bit different. It's something I've thought a lot about, and I'm not sure quite how to get at it. In the 1950s, when the civil rights movement was, was happening, I was really struck when I've gone back and looked at the pictures by the marchers who are marching, I think now this is the early 60s, uh, marching on Washington to hear Martin Luther King. And they carry signs that say, I am a man. And you know they are claiming universal rights. They are saying, not just that I'm as good as you, but I'm, I am you, you are me, we are both men. In the 70s and 80s, for a variety of reasons, and some of them very good reasons, 
our understanding of trauma and identity fractured really dramatically. And we began to say, you know, I'm, you know, a white cis male, you're, you know, a black cis male. We're, and the, the categories began to break up really powerfully. And this is on the left, right? And it's in ways that opened our society in a lot of good ways. So I don't want to lose that. But we stopped speaking about ourselves as fundamentally alike without developing techniques or institutions to work across difference. And that's the challenge. So my answer to your question is, in a world structured by difference and behind differences trauma, the only way to make things work is to work slowly in institutions on shared projects. So I belong to a radical, all-affirming, formerly Methodist church called Glide in San Francisco. That's a place where there are people of all colors, all ages, all orientations. And we get together and we work on projects for the social good. And most of those folks are people I would not see in my ordinary social world, nor are they people that I would necessarily feel a lot of instant likeness to. You know, some of them look really different than me and I look really different than them. And, you know, it, it is what it is. But in that space, we can work together. And I think we work together under a kind of umbrella that or a flag that many of us have been afraid to fly for a long time. And it's that mid 50s civil rights flag that says, I am a man. I am, I am here. You are here. We may be different, but we are one. We have our differences, but we are one. And getting to that, that state of mind, I think requires frequent low key collaboration on projects that matter and institutions that make that happen. Churches are a natural place. Schools are a natural place. Libraries are another place. Those are the places we need to be working together. So that's the only answer I've got. And it feels, I think, a little yeah. like maybe a, a retrograde kind of answer at this moment, but I, I feel it pretty acutely. Yeah, it's something that I think many people wrestle with, right? That mm. we are trying to find space to create compassion for one another, mm. to be inclusive of each other's stories. But there is hurt and trauma there that make it sometimes hard. Like, yeah. I, you know, speaking personally, one of my hardest things is as much as you know, those who know me in regular life know I'm a very like live and let live kind of person. Like mm -hmm. I love humanity, mm -hmm. right? But I, I also don't love all humans. <laughs> you know, so I make yeah, a, no. a, a distinction there, yeah. right? And so I think about our current political environment, right? And this is not a political show, but we're a week away from the election. This will be released after the mm -hmm. election. So people will kind of get a look past, right? But I think if I could think back to 2016, I remember having another conversation in this kind of a joking way, you know, a lot of like what I would call like classically white liberals mm -hmm. were like, oh, my God, I can't <laughs> believe this happened. Yeah. And I was like, well, you don't know any black people, right? Because we pretty much all were like in our conference rooms together and we called this, right? And I feel like that's part of a little humorous way of the disconnect mm -hmm. that happens. Like there's, you know, one group sees things this way. The other group is kind of like, uh, look out, right? <laughs> and, and I think these past four years have also been testament to that. Mm -hmm. Like when I'm online and Twitter, I see so many people are like, oh man, we never could have thought it would have been this bad. And I'm like, you clearly weren't reading like women right. writers, right. right? Women of color, you know, communities of color who the minute this dude once said, this is going to be a shit show. Yeah. Yeah. I, and strap in. Right. So, that's exactly right. And, and there's one more community I would add to your list, which would not, I think, be a natural link on the left. But that is white working class men from the Midwest whose factories were taken away from them in the 70s and 80s, you know, and who are Trump supporters. 
And, you know, elite liberals, period, but mostly elite white liberals like me, you know, we do tend to live in bubbles. We live on the coasts, we live in universities, and we don't tend to see those other worlds. You know, a lot of my research right now is on the 80s, and that's a time when our world turns toward, in theory, questions of difference, but totally ignores the fact that we are going through a period of massive deindustrialization. If you take away the factories that have structured towns for three or four generations, then you're going to leave people gasping and grasping for meaning. And they're going to turn back, just like the commune folks did, to norms and traumas that are underneath, that are cultural, that are embedded. And they're going to stop listening. And they're going to start summoning up those horrible ghosts in our history and wielding them as tools with which to claim power. Yeah. Your comment really points to, and it's so hard, and I can speak to this very personally, it's very hard coming from elite white liberal land, where I do come from, to learn to hear other people's experience and take it on board and take it in. It's really slow. It doesn't happen fast. You know, I, I've tried speaking for myself to keep my ears open, but I do find, you know, those inner resistance spots and I'm not especially in a hurry to give up my privilege. And I can feel that inside myself as I'm trying also to listen. And I think that's what, for example, Glide has done for me. It's given me an institutional space where I can have that encounter over and over again in low key ways until that kind of um, resistant part inside myself can be worn down and new ways of seeing the world can actually come in and I can actually start to be in a wider world. And I think that's a really good bridge to the complexity mm. piece that I, I kind of put a little pin in because when I was, you know, reflecting on the period of time in which a lot of this book and conversation is based and reflecting on how you frame these issues, what was really interesting to me is sort of how complexity was cherry picked <laughs> among the actors at the time, mm -hmm. right? And so when I think about Stuart Brand and a lot of these folks thinking about the, they know, the communal life, a lot of that is rooted in, you know, the natural world, you know, going out and building something with your hands and moving away from cities and all these different mm -hmm. things that we kind of think about when it comes to that life, mm -hmm. right? So I'm painting with a broad stroke just to get to the point. But when I think about the natural world and how it works, it is actually very, very complex. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a lot of the relationship to it was very surface, which made me think about the bureaucracy piece, because bureaucracy in and of itself is also potentially complex. It has interrelated pieces that need to work together to be functional, right? And make the natural world works the same way, but yet their thinking didn't really seem to incorporate it in the way it really is. You know, and maybe it's the linear nature to which they define systems thinking at the time, whereas I feel like the natural world is more nodal mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In, in the mm -hmm. way it works, is more root-based. Mm -hmm. So a lot in there, but I'm kind of curious about the complexity piece and, and how you kind of square that historically with where we've ended, so to speak. Yeah. So in the 60s, Stuart Brand, founder of the Whole Earth Catalog, very visible sort of countercultural figure, embraces cybernetics, which was in many ways an early science of complexity. And, and cybernetics is simply the idea that the world as a whole, natural and organic and mechanical and social, all those worlds are essentially information systems, constantly exchanging information and producing order out of the constant exchange of information. Now, Brand and the crew that moved back to the land in the 60s and early 70s imagine, I think, and claim that by getting back to the land, they're going to get closer to that natural order that cybernetics has revealed, the order of constantly interchanging information. So I'll be close to a tree and the tree will show me what I need to know and then I'll grow and all that stuff. 
you know, in point of fact, what actually happened was that they took to the land much more like 18th century colonists. They ignored the people who were already there. They hacked out plots of land that they could live on. And they established communities just like early American Puritans did that actually resembled the communities that they had come from in the Puritans case back in England and commune case back in the suburbs. What happened to complexity, I think, was that it became a kind of weirdly legitimating ideology. The same time that the counterculture is going back to the land, new industrial formations are coming up, thanks in part to the computer, that are in fact geographically distributed, extremely flexible and networked. And the language of natural complexity provided, I think, a language for a class of people who were on the communes in the 60s, but very shortly thereafter employed in the tech world, to imagine that the kinds of control that computers allowed were, in fact, natural, collaborative, networked. You know, Stuart Brand and others in the early 80s said, ah, you know, the communes didn't work out, they collapsed, but thank goodness, now we have the internet, we have computers, we have a system that we can live inside. So I think that the idea of complexity lost the kind of benevolent rootedness that you're describing and became instead a way to summon up the image of nature to legitimate a new economic structure that was extraordinarily flexible, globalized, networked, connected through computers. Now, I don't want to lose track of the, the factory story in this because as that world is being built, people who are working in industrial, traditional industrial formations, factories, nine to five jobs, their living is being exported. And that's going to continue through the 80s. And part of where we are now, I think, is in a place where that anger is coming back at us through Trump and through Trump supporters in a way that we've almost lost track of the source of. And it is in that, that turn toward complexity as an idea and an ideology and toward distributed, computationally oriented, networked industry, as opposed to factories and mass production. I, you know, it's great that we kind of landed on order because I kind of wrote that down because I have another question at the top that I was going to start with, but now I'm glad we backed into it Great. this way because it, it allows, I think, for us to capture a lot of this moment, mm. this particular moment in our conversation, which is, do we generally need better metaphors? And what I mean by that is that even if you go way back, right, into Reformation and, you know, when you start to get sort of, uh, you know, the thinking that the reasoning and the philosophers that came out of out of that time, a lot of what the metaphors are, are sort of deterministic to the technology that they had at the time, mm. you know, that the human beings were like clocks, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And then you kind of move forward and now, you know, we just multitask and we just have all <laughs> our nodes in our brains that are just like plugged into the computer, just file things away. Like you, we're constantly using these mechanical deterministic metaphors when our lived experiences are not really like that. Like, yeah, our bodies are kind of machines, but not really. Like when you really talk to like biologists, they're like, no, it ain't. Yeah, <laughs> right? Like right. It's not really a machine as much as we kind of use that. That's kind of a classic metaphor. Like if you take care of your body, it won't let you down. It's just like oil in a car, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So do we just generally need better metaphors that pull us away from these sort of deterministic mechanical, whether it's a clock or a laptop or your phone or your Fitbit or whatever the hell it is, that really ground us in a more human experience? 
You know, I think better metaphors would help. Better metaphors are always good to pursue. But I actually think that the challenge is a little bit different. I think we live in an era Mm -hmm. so saturated with stories and so saturated with personal stories, especially, and with technologies that are right up close to our bodies, that we've lost the ability to see through them to the systems that are in charge. I think what we need is actually a new critical sensibility that takes institutions really seriously on the left. It does not only take personal experience seriously, but takes trauma and the ways that trauma structures our institutions so seriously that we begin to do the work of reconstructing them. And, you know, when I see AOC, she's my example. She would be my poster child for this process. Simultaneously really aware of the way that the world could be and carrying new metaphors, but at the same time doing the work of transforming institutions. That's the combination that I think is likely to work. You know, by way of a very local example, you know, you might be very happy with your Alexa in your house. You may not pause to think about the ways that it's tracking your behavior, recording your sounds, and then retailing those to other actors. That's the kind of consciousness we need. We need to be aware that these things that feel personal and individual to us are, in fact, being driven by large technical and social and corporate systems, and that that we live in those, and and we need to be thoughtful about that. And the only way to, to challenge that and to build new metaphors as lives is to build new institutions wherein we can collaborate with other folks who are very different than ourselves and build the world that we imagine. I'm never going to argue with AOC <laughs> reference. I tell everybody AOC, I don't, well, I care deeply what happens next Tuesday, but regardless of that outcome, AOC in 2024 is my mantra. Right on. I'm totally on board uh, with, uh, with I, that. My, you know, can you imagine a world where, where she was actually president? You know, I can remember being- It'd be better than this well, one. I, I can remember being in, being in college or just after college and Jesse Jackson was running for president with the Rainbow Coalition. And at the time, it was such a, a hopeful thing, you know, in the midst of Reagan's America to have Jesse Jackson out and about just showing another possibility. I mean, I, you know, I will never forget that. And I have that same feeling with AOC now, with the exception that I think she has a broader base of support than Jesse Jackson did in his day. But I, again, see that possibility of a society that really includes the full rainbow, all of us. And I think she could bring that to us. Yeah, I was, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, I would love to see no, AOC. No, 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 you're president. absolutely right. That would be terrific. And I think you know, using her as an example, because what I'd be interested to do is even in this conversation, we talked about charisma, Mm -hmm. how it affected the 60s, because even if you make the distinction between the new communalist and let's say the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. the civil rights movement had charisma and Mm -hmm. patriarchal issues Mm -hmm. as well, Mm -hmm. right? There's a reason why people don't know Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer, in the same way that they know Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Evers, and and others. Absolutely. You know, or even Bayard Rustin representing as a gay man. Right, right. Right? Yeah. And James Baldwin in the same way. He's more lionized. But, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't lead with his experience all the time as being- No, by no means. By no means. Right? Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that just was in the suit mm-hmm. at that time that I think affected both. Mm-hmm. But as we kind of look forward, Mm -hmm. and again, AOC is an example, how do we make sure or how do we ensure that we don't fall back into another charisma trap, right? And do that institutional work to make sure that we do have firm foundations in place to make viable futures that will include a different technology story. Yep. So yep. I love that. I love the idea of a charisma trap. It reminds me of the, the phrase thirst trap. You know, our, 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 <laughs> it's, it's amazing, right? Because our media systems right now are precisely charisma traps. 
you know, they are places where if you can get somebody who will stand up and lie to the public in a compelling way, broadcasters around the world will circulate it instantly. And next thing you know, you've got Donald Trump for your president. I think one thing is actually a piece of work that we need to do in the past that we tend to neglect. And, and you were talking about the civil rights movement and its misogyny and its patriarchy, very powerful forces. And we absolutely need to recover the memory of the accomplishment of people like Fannie Lou Hamer. At the same time, I think when we look back and we see folks who've achieved change and moved it forward, we need to be a little bit more forgiving than we're being at the moment. They are working in a time when the cultural norms are what they are, and they are working with the tools that they have to hand, and they are not perfect. No one's perfect. They are imperfect human beings doing the best they can under great pressure. You know, did Dr. King have affairs? Probably. Does that diminish his achievement? I don't think so. And No. Absolutely right. not. And I think that we need to be a little bit kinder to that past generation. And when we are, then I think we'll be a little bit more comfortable with the opportunities that we have in front of us and with the fact that they are not complete. We're not perfect. They're not perfect. We're going to do the best we can with the systems that we have. We're going to push where we can and make change where we can. And we're going to watch out for charismatic leaders and we're going to hold them to account. And we're going to try to have lots of different kinds of folks in the conversation. But I think that the appreciation of imperfection and the forgiving for imperfection may allow us to work with folks with whom we disagree partially or completely. And I think that's absolutely critical. You know, when I look at the civil rights movement, I think that there are people, there were white folks in Birmingham who were so angry at what was happening that I'm pretty sure they never let that go and that won't let it go until they die off. But there were others watching who had their minds changed in real time. And maybe not as much as we would like, but maybe they taught their kids and their kids kept changing and their kids kept changing and their kids kept changing. And I hope that we can be kind to one another a little bit forgiving as we stretch out across difference. You know, I think that's a real challenge. And right now I see folks on both sides, both of all of our polls, who are starting to dehumanize folks who are not like themselves. And I, I think that's the most dangerous place to be. Because once you dehumanize someone, you commit the acts that produce trauma and the trauma lives through time. And that's just not where we need to go. So I guess my answer would be, let's start to rehumanize one another. Let's start to be kind to one another. It sounds hokey, but it is kind of simple. And let's try to forgive one another on all sides for our imperfections. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard work. It's very you know? hard work. <laughs> like, it, it was, it's very hard work. And especially when, you know, the things that we're wrestling with have the kind of historical resonance that you're pointing to. I mean, I don't know how a descendant of slaves can find peace around a descendant of masters. That's hard. I don't know how to do that. And I don't know how to do it as a, you know, on the other side, right? Like, I feel sort of baffled. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very difficult. You know, that would be a topic of a whole yeah. other show. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and <laughs> to, it's sort of the hardest to, to kind of. It's the hardest example. Yeah, it's the hardest case. Yeah, it's the hardest case. I, I'm almost sorry for touching on the pain of it. But it's, no, it, but it's, that's where we are in America. And that's the kind of pain we have to wrestle with. But I think that gives us an opportunity, you know, to at least mention, because we, like I said, we don't even have the time to interrogate it in this moment. But you know, when I've come to, you know, and I, and abolition work, mm, right. Mm. Like using the language of abolition, which people obviously will think of antebellum slavery and a move from enslaved people to freedom, but abolition has become a concept around prison, around reformative justice. And that asks us to imagine a society that does not dispose of anyone, right. you know, with no distinction. It's not that, oh, we're just, we're not disposing of the people who did the low level stuff or, you know, it's like, no, the really heavy stuff, right? Like, how do we reclaim that? And, you know, there's people like Ruth Wilson Gilmore yeah. working, and Angela Davis working mm -hmm. on these issues. And I think what your statement invites 
is a similar type of work mm. that how do we imagine something different? I love that. Yeah, <laughs> you know? thank you. That's so right. And I don't have the answer. I don't know because it's hard for me, right? Like sometimes these things are, they're philosophical and I'm like, yeah. And then I turn on, you know, BBC or mm-hmm. something and I hear words from the other side and I'm like, nah, right. it's Game of Thrones time. Right. Right. Lannister rules. Right. Well, I <laughs> right. the same way. You know, when I watched the Homeland Security officers cover their badges in March in Portland, I just about lost my mind. I do think, though, that you actually, in your comment, laid out a map to a couple of different ways we can forward. One is recovering parts of our history that offer models of new ways of being. I think that's great. I mean, part of that involves recognizing where we went wrong. When we take proper account of what didn't happen during Reconstruction, you know, we can see both how we got to where we got to, and we can perhaps open a new way to be in the present. I think that's really important. I think that noticing and naming in the present is still enormously powerful and seeing things as systemic is really powerful. I think that this is where it gets back to this theme of personalization. If you're busy personalizing people who commit crimes as criminals, you lose all track of the fact that of, you know, just not remembering her name, but called the new Jim Crow. You know, you lose all track of the fact that this is Michelle Alexander. Thank you. This is a systemic problem and it's historically rooted, comes with trauma, but it's being enacted systemically. It's not a personal issue. If we keep arguing that things are about personal responsibility, we're going to lose the ability to see these systemic forces. This is what I want us to be able to do. I want us not to retreat to where the new communalists retreated, sort of into our houses and our personal experience, and I'm just going to change myself but rather to reach outward toward people who are very different from ourselves, who may make us angry, with whom we have to have incredibly difficult conversations, and build new kinds of institutions where we can negotiate explicitly about how we want to live together. That's the world I want. Absolutely. I think that's a perfect way to put a pin in it in this particular moment, because I want to get to the last two segments of the show. And, you know, we we covered a ton of different stuff that I went into that I expected, but it was just as good as I, as I could. Oh, I feel so that. lucky to be here. You I know. thank you. It's really, really nice to be here and to have this conversation. No, it's been a, a fun one. So I want to get us to just a couple of quick off the dome questions. And off the dome is like, like it sounds. I'm going to answer you a quick question and then you just kind of give me the first thing that, that comes to mind. So we only have two. And one is, what is the worst professional advice you ever received? The worst professional advice I ever received was look and see where the field is going and try to be there. That's just terrible. Mm. What I would do instead is just, no, absolutely not. Find what you love, listen for what you love, and go straight after that. And that's the way that you'll find the things that you care about and the places you can contribute uniquely. Awesome. The second one, uh, second and last one is, and I've asked this question a few times, so listeners might get tired of hearing it, but I always get like such a good response. So it's become kind of one of my favorite off the dome questions is, if you had the opportunity to either travel back in time and meet your ancestors or travel into the future and meet your descendants, which would you choose? Oh gosh, I'd have to say descendants. You know, it's because, you know, I'm weirdly lucky, right? I'm from New England. My family was there for a long time. And the history of New England has been written by a million times. I feel like I have a feel for that. You know, they're not my actual ancestors usually, but, you know, I have a feel for their world. I would be tremendously curious, first off, to see if there will be a world in the future. And second, to see what kinds of people inhabit it. You know, I can already see in my daughter, my, I have a 25-year-old daughter and her friends, a different generation, a generation that's much kinder to one another, much more alert to how they're feeling than my generation was. And that just encourages me. And so I have high hopes and I would love to see how it all turns out. Awesome. So now we're going to get into the drop. And the drop is a, a recommendation for our listeners. It could be anything at all. There could be multiple drops. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be just one. I have one kind of one, maybe one and a half. 
and I know you're teed up with mm-hmm. one. So do you want me to go first? You go first. You want to go first. first? Okay. My drop is Stuart Hall. I love Great. Stuart Hall's work. He's a thinker, an anthropologist. He wears so many different titles depending on what you read about him or research about him. So I just like to say he's like a thinker. It's just a do-all capture. And basically they have there's a lot of books out by him, but there's Essential Essays, two vol- volumes, one and two. I recently got new copies of them. They're just filled with you know his genius in both editions. So that's why I said it's kind of one and a half since it's really one volume, but two sections. So Stuart Hall, Essential Essays, volume one and two is my drop. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. What a great drop. I love Stuart Hall. I teach him every year. And I stumbled in London into a library that is the Stuart Hall Library. I didn't even know it exists. It was out in Hackney. And it is his actual home library that he gave to the city to be a resource for its citizens. And you can walk in there and look at Stuart Hall's books. It's incredible. So just wanted to flag that. That's the first to drop, I guess. The other thing I would recommend is is something called Logic Magazine. It's a quarterly published by Moira Weigel, Ben Tarnoff, some other folks. Logic Magazine is the place right now where I think the most interesting conversations are going on about technology and society. I just think they're wonderful. Uh, Moira and Ben have a habit of pulling in the most interesting folks, getting really good questions going. It's a quarterly, it's not expensive. Logic Magazine, just essential reading. That's awesome. Thank you for the tip on Stuart Hall's. My, I have family in London. Oh, my uncle lives in Hackney, and I can't believe I don't know that that existed. But now the next time I go to, well, to yeah. London, I will definitely check it out. This has I'm been sorry, a, a, Hoxton, a great Hoxton, conversation. Not, not Hackney. I think it's Hoxton. Oh, it's in Hoxton. Okay. We'll find it. Yep. We'll find it. This has been amazing. I really appreciate the time, the energy, the focus, all of that good stuff. No, thank you. I want to thank you again for being on the deep dive. Oh, thank you, Philip. Real pleasure. And uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's all hang in there through this election and see where we get to. Absolutely. Thanks again. It's been a pleasure having Fred Turner join me on the deep dive. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts or our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.